0: day. Acts 6, 7 through 15. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, And of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not understand the wisdom, withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes.
1: Good morning. Thank you to Shelley for her reading and her testimony her walk with the Lord. She is one who also has the face of an angel there see that 's why we chose her. No, I really do appreciate her testimony and her walk with the Lord, and she keeps her eyes fixed on the Lord in all circumstances. So thank you to her for the reading and appreciate all of you being here this morning and coming around a very gigantic text of scripture that we've got to um, survey over. We won't be taking in bite-sized pieces or anything like that, so we'll see how we get through it all. I was struck this morning on the way in listening to something and being reminded of the context that... um, That not only were the people in the time of the book of Acts that was written and the accounts that were taking place, the the things that they were struggling with, the same things that we're struggling with now, which is a great amount of a great deal of uncertainty and anxiety over the circumstances of our lives, the futures in which we have our survival, what happens after this life. And we look around in the landscape of the, the world around us and sometimes we, we kind of think that um, there, there are all these different issues happening. The reality, though, is that uh, we are t- tempted to look at the symptoms of a sickness And think that we can diagnose it that way and just solve the problems at a symptom level. But the reality is there's a great deal going on behind the movements in our culture. There's a great deal of anxiety and stress that is playing itself out in some of these things that are hitting our headlines and showing up in our Facebook threads and all of these kinds of things. Because for the most part, the population around us, and if we're being honest, somewhat us too, we're scared. That there's a great amount of fear even if you, if, even if for the people that don't acknowledge that there's God and eternity and all the things that we talk about and we find in the scriptures, there's a, there's an undercurrent of fear and anxiety, and it shows up in particular in the midst of suffering and a threat to one's safe little corner of the world. We've been experiencing now, now this acutely for the last several years, where if you touch people's sense of safety and sense of security then those fears will pour out of them in sometimes bizarre and unusual ways and sometimes very predictable and relatable ways. We come here this morning, we open the scriptures as, as humbly as we can, as we look into it like a mirror, we say, wow, I do not live up to all the principles, standards and expectations of this book. But we come here because we unite in a grace that understands where we're coming from and and, and then endeavors to make us different in the process as we face the biggest fears and insecurities and frustrations of our lives. And so we come here to, to seek the one who has the answers and Christianity in particular as a religion or as a a a a thought an institute of thought is only is one of only two uh, major world religions that offers an answer to suffering to the uncertainty that faces us and if you're taking notes or you want to know Buddhism would be the other one that at least addresses sur- uh suffering those are the only two schools of thought that place suffering at the heart of their teaching now the difference is going to be is that Buddha, Buddhism is going to lead you to a path of trying to avoid suffering. These are the steps, the techniques, and the, the rituals that you can take so that, that you can um, uh, cut around suffering and take the path of least resistance and have peace and tranquility and, and harmony in that sense. Christianity, though, leads you through it, that there is hope and transformation to be found in suffering. We believe that God brings his blessing to us in the midst of our pain and trials and uncertainty, not just by showing up to erase them from our lives. Christ's followers find hope through an eternal transformation that that takes place in the fact that we once were hard-hearted, we once were without answers, we once were without direction, and yet Christ has moved in and he's given us what the scriptures say, instead of a heart of stone, it has been replaced with a heart of flesh. So now we have a desire to hear his voice, we have eyes to see his principles, and we have ears to hear his voice that will lead us into places of hope and certainty, this is the transformation that takes place within us. It isn't just from a, 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 an act of outward religion. We don't just go to church enough or give enough money or to do enough good deeds in order to say we found our true religion. Our true religion, quote unquote, is actually what's found in the transformation that takes place within us. Suffering and uncertainty and difficulty squeezes the real us out. <laughs> Who we are on the inside comes out in the most tense and uncertain situations. I don't know if you've seen any of those videos before where people are jump scaring one another. And, and the funniest reactions come out of people when they think their lives are being threatened. It's cruel and unusual punishment. It's terrible. But it's so entertaining. Actually, my, my family, I am surrounded by women in my family from my mother to my wife to my daughter's who all just will cry laughing when somebody falls. It's the most cruel thing. They're the sweetest people in general course of life. But if you fall in front of them, they, they might help you up, but they're going to be doing it going, that was so great, let me help you, that was awesome. It's just, it's the way they're wired. I don't know, I don't get it. When we are in the midst of our difficulty, when we are actually falling down in life in more serious forms and the pressure is on, the fear is on, the things that we didn't know were inside of us come out and they express themselves often in some very ugly ways or some very frightening ways. This is what we're going to see in reaction to the message that Stephen, uh, who we met last week, He was put in charge of, and I'm just speaking metaphorically here, he was put in charge of the assembly of the sandwich line. This man, the sandwich guy I will here on refer to him as, he did not literally make sandwiches, and his only job was not making sure that the food got handed out, but that's how we're going to use it as we're going forward. But this sandwich guy brought out such... Fierce and incredible reaction from people that should have been more calm and austere and more in control of their emotions and come up with a reasonable plan. But instead, the truth that he was spewing was such an offense to them. And they couldn't, as we just heard from the text that was written, they couldn't even reason with it. They couldn't even defend against it. It made so much sense. And it was so exposing to them that their reaction, the thing that came out of them, was something that I'm sure. They would look back and be embarrassed about it the least. So we're going to look a little bit closer in sort of a survey kind of way of Stephen and his moment, because this is the longest speech in the scriptures. This is the most uh, one of the most incredible sermons given. And it was all on the fly. He was given a millisecond of an opening, an opportunity. They said, what, spe- what do you say to these charges that are being levied against you? And he just took that tiny little opening and he ran with it. And he did some incredible things with this message. So we're going to take a closer look at it together. Because I believe Stephen is a demonstration of what it means to be ready, what it means to be poised in the midst of great suffering. And you don't get there without being secure or anchored in the hope of your suffering. This is a turning point in the future of the church. What's about to happen as the church is is entering a new phase and a new stage is incredible. And it's why we look back and we study it with great interest, because this is how the movement of the Spirit works as we've been seeing the pattern. After persecution usually comes this incredible explosion of growth and unity. And so we should uh, not expect anything different, but it even is taking on a different twist because the audience is somewhat different, where before uh, the apostles were reaching um, like-minded Jews who weren't convinced of the truth of, of Christ and his resurrection. They were seeing his power now demonstrated through the apostles and the other disciples. They were coming to terms with things they couldn't explain away. We've already seen some persecution coming from those in charge, uh, clamping down on the leadership, putting them in jail. Holy Spirit opens the door and says, go back to the temple and keep preaching the truth, even though it offends them. So they obediently go and do it. And now we have a guy in the audience who will eventually become the most pivotal person in the shaping and the formation of the New Testament church. But as he's in the audience, he is the greatest antagonist to what's happening. The apostle that we know as Paul is at this point, the guy who is known as Saul, he is a zealot Jew. He is one who thinks he's defending the cause of God and he's going to snuff out the voice of this upstart Christians known as the way. And so he is in the audience witnessing the persecution that's going to be happening to Stephen. So that undoubtedly becomes one of the biggest reasons for the turning point in what this message is going to result in. But also now the stakes are raised. The the pressure's been on, the persecution's been there, imprisonment has happened. But what we know, if I hope you read ahead, I asked you last week because it was such a big passage of Scripture, we wouldn't be able to read it all together. I hope you read ahead, but if if you haven't, I'm going to end up spoiling the end right now, is that Stephen dies. And now this this faith, yes, we've seen it in Christ, but he was our unique savior. But now we're seeing that this same uh, faith following him might cost us our lives as well. So the reason for the turning point at this time in uh, at this time in the church's history is because of the stakes. Now this would cost us our life. And when you have people willing to sign up for the thing that will cost your life, it is bound to flourish and grow. It is bound to set on fire the people around who are watching it burn. So the stakes have been raised, but also in Stephen's reaction to the persecution, the pain and even his death, they see this is what hope looks like. The things he says in in his final breath, in his final statements, these are the things that our society is not anchored in 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 the terms of their suffering where there's no obvious hope, there's no anchor to which they can say, no matter what I go through, I know he's got me, I can see his face right before me. I know that this isn't all I have to deal with. So this is all playing out in a chapter and a half of our text. the church is thrust out of Jerusalem. Jesus had said, stay in Jerusalem, wait for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes, explodes the growth of the church. There are thousands that respond to it, that join the cause and join the way. Now to be facing this persecution, and now they're going to be sent out into the region. And I don't think it's any mistake that last week, Luke, the author of Acts, introduced us to the argument that the Hellenists had Um, that they, the complaint that they had about the fact that they were being skipped in some of the distribution of the food resources. We had set the stage a little bit to help us understand that as many Greek speaking Jews were spread throughout the region beyond Jerusalem, it was often the desire before their final days that they would migrate back to the Holy city and take up residence there. And so many were coming back to Jerusalem, but because they were further along in age, they might've lost their spouse. And it was part of Hebrew culture to look after the needs of the of the poor and the widow. And so there was a complaint saying, look, I know you guys are trying your best. I'm reading between the lines. But honestly, some of our people are getting skipped in the lunch line. And we think it has something to do with the fact that we don't speak the same language as you. And we've taken on some Greek cultures that maybe you guys are a little bit snobby towards or judging us over or something. And so there was a threat of disunity in all that Jesus was accomplishing through the Holy Spirit. And so the leadership of the church heard those complaints and responded wisely by saying we need to appoint seven people of good reputation who will represent the needs of the people who are being overlooked. And we and we talked about the fact that they had appointed Greek speaking Hellenists by and large. So rather than the apostles coming across as some snob saying, hey, this is below us. We've got big things to do. There's handicapped people we need to heal. There's gospel that we need to give out. All these other miracles we need to perform. They said, this is a serious complaint. We want to make sure the church remains unified. So let's represent their needs and let's meet them. And that's when we were introduced to not only seven names, but in particular, we were, re- we were introduced to Stephen and Philip, who will have tremendous um, highlights In the next couple of chapters for us. So from a from a church history standpoint, we know why this is so important. But we are here this morning, not necessarily just to brush up on our church history, but because we walked in here with various needs, struggles and and fears. And we walked in with with conflict and decisions to make and all of the things that we carry about in life. So how does Stephen's experience speak to us this morning? Or in other words, how can we experience the hope that will stand in the face of suffering like he did? And how can our standing and suffering even change the world around us? Very simplistic outline for us here today. But again, it's because the highlight is on Stephen, but also on the hope that he had. So it doesn't take a lot of complication to break this down. And I'm not capable of complication anyway, so you get what you get, right? All right. First things first, from our text... We can learn to follow Jesus just like Stephen did. Stephen, we've been introduced to his character already as we came across a description of him in verse 5 last week that said he was full of the Holy Spirit. And full of meaning that he was controlled By God that he was completely surrendered if he was convinced that the voice of the Holy Spirit of the voice of God told him to do something Stephen had the kind of character that he'd say I'm in I'll do it what do you need. That's what it means that he was full of the Holy Spirit that his life was led by the purposes and the principles of God. I'm going to just pause here for a second and challenge us because this really is the start to everything. I know that we have different experiences, we have different education levels, we have different um, um, uh, background levels and background experiences and all those kinds of things. But the one thing all of us have is a will. And until that will is surrendered to the gentle but loving and firm voice of the Holy Spirit, we go nowhere in our Christian growth. It doesn't matter how many years you've been sitting in, in, a, in a church chair. It doesn't matter, like I said before, how much money you give to a, a charity or a church function. It doesn't even matter any of those things until our will is surrendered to be controlled by God, knowing he can be trusted. Nothing really changes. We, we kind of stay stuck. That is the catalyst. The surrendered heart is a catalyst to growing, to knowing more, but also to making an impact In the world around us. This is a description of the character of Stephen. He was full of faith, which meant he believed. He didn't just believe in belief's sake as we hear so often in the world today. He believed in the one whom God sent, who is Jesus Christ. He believed that he was raised from the dead. He believed that he could have forgiveness of his sins because of what Jesus accomplished. He was full of it. And he was full of the Holy Spirit. His his voice was one with the with the spirits. He heard, he was in tune with the voice of the spirit. He knew the word of God as we're going to see. And he allowed God to speak to him through it. He was full of grace. We're going to see that on incredible display before we're done. And then, of course, he had tremendous power and impact. The sandwich guy was ready to go. Remember, we said that the uh, the apostles appointed these guys who seemed a little high powered for the job. If we were concerned that sandwiches weren't getting distributed, again, simplistic, humorous reduction of what's really going on. But if we're really concerned, then why do we need these people are of such immense character and wisdom and, and tact and all those things? Because it's never just about the sandwiches, is it? In the life of a church, it's about whether or not we're feeling excluded or included, whether or not we're growing in the Lord, whether or not Satan's got a foothold to cause disunity and division. We need people of wisdom and of of depth and of knowledge of who the Lord is in order to manage these things well. So Stephen, yes, was using his gift to help orchestrate and distribute and do those things, but we're going to see that he was also using his gifts in other ways to make an impact for those around him. Again, this is where you and I can start our journey right now. Trusting in the Lord, submitting to the Holy Spirit, showing grace to others. That is a choice. You can't leave here this morning saying, I didn't know what to do. But we can leave here this morning saying, I'm not really willing to. That's what we got to be careful of. We see all this in Stephen's character. And what we witness is that he had a tremendous impact we heard from our reading already that they couldn 't withstand the wisdom and the spirit that was pouring out of sandwich guy 's mouth. They were like he was put in charge of some other task that we would have thought menial, and he is here dressing us down logically and and and, and with wisdom and things to help us to, to to embarrass us or to frustrate us in front of. Those that think we're all in charge and astute and in, in, uh, in high-powered and things, and he's he's reducing us before them. They couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit that was pouring out of his mouth. So what did they do? They do what most people on the losing side do. They secretly instigated. They stirred up. They rallied false witnesses. They... They they manipulated the situation, they said other things other than what the truth was in order to get a crowd on their on their side. This is what desperate people do when we're backed into a corner like a like a rabid animal. We come out and just, you know, claws and fangs and everything. That's exactly what we see brewing here with the Sanhedrin, these elite, austere, wise leaders. Hey, say this instead. Or maybe that's what they heard, but they definitely weren't there to set the record straight. They wanted to manipulate the situation. There's a warning for us in this. You know, we're in a landscape now where most people just want to win. And, and, I'm, and I'm saying this to both the biblical conservative and the, the free thinking, quote unquote, worldly person who doesn't think there's any space or room for God in our society. When we reduce our strategy to what will help us win, we make all kinds of strange bedfellows. We start partnering with lots of people and ideologies that will not represent the Lord well. Truth and deceit are never victorious in their partnership. If we ever utilize deceit to get our point across just because all that matters is to win now, we ultimately lose and we have to surrender these things to the Lord and trust That once we engage in deceit, what we're really revealing is our lack of trust in the truth. If we're on the winning side, we don't have to stoop, I guess is another way in which I'd say that. So this is all seen in the character of Stephen. He's standing up to their allegations. He's not going toe to toe with them like, hey, I didn't say that. Get your facts right or any of those kinds of things. He he doesn't need to. He doesn't have to get in the mud with them. Instead, he's going, to, he's going to follow Jesus. He's going to conduct himself exactly as his Savior did through all of his persecution and suffering. So we see this on display in Stephen's character and in his conduct. Secondly, I'd say that we should show our enemies Jesus just like Stephen did. So again, summary over a gigantic text, Stephen sounds like what he's doing is just going into a redemptive history of Israel to people that already know it all. It seems like if you just read it once and on the surface that he's kind of just spouting, hey, I know these things too, you know, because he's going to go through the patriarchs and the history and the events, all that these people that were faithful to the temple could say, yeah, I could recite this stuff too. Well, we have to ask ourselves, why is he bringing some of these things to light? Why is he emphasizing certain aspects of the story? And why is he using this as his defense? Because what they're accusing him of is attacking the need for a temple. What they're accusing him of is attacking the legitimacy of the law. And so he's going to respond to that. He's going to answer to two of those attacks, and he's going to add, because he has the microphone, he's going to add his own additional observations. So let's try to move through these things somewhat quickly. I don't want to be in a rush, but there's just a lot of ground to cover. First thing that he's going to address, actually not first. I'm taking these out of order a little bit if you're following along. But uh, what I want to address first is that he's going to point out that Jesus is the location of God. If you're just going to skim the the scripture, and text, you're probably not going to see that right there. And I'm not saying I'm coming up with this on my own, but he's addressing this attack that Stephen um, is is downplaying the temple, that he doesn't think the temple is important. There's even talk that he's going to destroy the temple, all this manipulative conversation around this. And so he's pointing out here, you want to meet God, but you think and you think it's just in the temple, but that's not how it works. They had heard by now, especially out of John 14, that Jesus said to them in response to his disciples, have I been with you so long and you and you still don't know me, Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the father. Their question was, hey, Jesus, this is great. We're spending this time with you. We're getting to know you. This is so great. Make it better by showing us the father. How do we know who he is? And he says, "If I have been with you all this time and you don't recognize that even though I am not the same person that the father is distinct from me, but I am the expression and the representation of the father so much so that if you've seen me, you've seen him. You see, the temple was the pride and joy of the Jews. They they saw it as that location. They saw it as that honor that they got to defend it and build it and protect it and everything. What they don't often mention is the fact that God never said, build me a temple. He had provided for them a tabernacle, which is a glorified tent. He says, as you are on the move and you're sojourning, so that will be the place of your worship and your sacrifices and my glory will rest in it and that sort of thing. But but uh but that was meant to be on the move. It was David who, after he had become king and was successful on his conquests and the different things that the Lord had uh, assigned him to do and stuff, he said, Lord, you've been so good to me. You've provided everything I need. Let me build you a place. Let me build you a temple. And God not saying, oh, that's stupid. I've never heard of such an idea or anything. He didn't say that. He says, the request is honorable, but it won't be you. It'll be your son who builds it. And it was Solomon who actually built it. Most likely what the Jews are hearing and twisting is that Stephen was probably preaching on Jesus' comments on the temple when they said to him, how are we supposed to know you're the Messiah? How do we know that you're legit? All these sorts of things. He said, Jesus said, destroy this temple. He's pointing at his own body, basically. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The scriptures even say, and we know it from looking in hindsight, that he was clearly speaking of his own body after the resurrection. But you know how it is in debate and argumentation and being offended. You only hear what you want to hear. And so Stephen might have been preaching the same things to the people in the temple about the fact that Jesus was proven to be the son of God because he had said, destroy this temple. in three days, oh, he said he's going to knock the temple down. That's it. I knew he hated, it. he was a temple hater. They started having their picket signs and their bumper stickers and everything. And he didn't say anything to the, to the, uh, to the fact that we have any record of. So instead he's going to answer their attack. And this is how he's going to answer it. He's going to say our biggest names met God without a temple. All of those that we point back to are in our heritage. Abraham. Joseph, who ended up in Egypt, Moses, who was confronted by God before a burning bush. None of them needed a temple to meet God. You've all made it sound like this is the only place that you can meet God. Now, I know there's some people that are hearing this saying, that's exactly why I don't have to go to church on Sundays. You don't need a church to meet God. Different point, weak argument, another message for another day. The point being is that the national pride or the the spiritual pride that was in this constructed location that was seen as the residence of God had, had so much backstory for them and so much importance that they had made the place essentially their God. Stephen says, have you forgotten that Abraham didn't need a temple to meet God, that that Joseph was was, was dealt with and, and given uh, his position from God in a foreign land? Did you know that Moses was talking to a bush? God will meet you anywhere he determines he will meet you is what he's saying. And he even quotes the prophets that warned that the temple wasn't intended to contain God when he said, yet the most high God does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord or what is my place of rest? Did not my hand make all these things? In other words, I created all this and you think you can make a house for me. Stephen points out that you can't confine God to a box. Now, metaphorically speaking, or at least in a, transferable kind of way i believe we still do this all the time we may not have the same heritage concerns that the jews had and things but but we still make a, a an expectation that we can contain who god is and how powerful he is and what what he's all about based on our own understanding anytime we say i just couldn't believe in a god who would fill in the blank or the god that i follow doesn't do fill in the blank. Most often what follows that kind of statement is a statement of personal understanding or, or ability to comprehend what God could be up to. We have to be careful, especially as God's people to not refer to the God of our experience more than we refer to the God of the scriptures. I would encourage us to think through and make statements that sound a little bit more like, well, the God of the Bible does this, or the God of the Bible says this. It will protect us from just trying to manage the God that we can package, that we can reduce down to the the limitations of our own understanding and thinking. He is beyond that. The Jews, under the sound of Stephen's voice, have a problem, though, because they're saying, wait a second, you're saying the temple isn't necessary, but that's where we make our sacrifices. You're saying we don't need a place, but that's where we pay for our sins, so it's a Kind of a perfect segue here to say what Stephen was really pointing them to, which was the satisfaction of those sacrifices. You see, Jesus is, of course, the satisfaction of God's law. So if you have the satisfaction of God's law, then you don't need the place to continue to offer sacrifices to pay for your sins. The law, stop me if you've heard this, was the pride and joy of the Jews, just like the temple was. The Mosaic law, the law that God handed down to Moses, chisels on the tablets or however it worked, and he brought them to the people. The 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 writings that he had all through the, the Pentateuch in the Old Testament, and then, and then even the law that they added on to it. And remember, we talked about this a little bit in John, where we said it's almost like as if they said, well, God meant to say all these things too. And they wrote down the law called the Mishnah. All of those things were, became the pride and joy of the Jews. They were like, Stephen's offending us because he doesn't, he doesn't think we need the law, but we are people of the law. Stephen goes, really, are you, though? Let's just do a little bit of history. Again, so he preaches and he highlights through the history of Israel to emphasize certain embarrassing facts. His answer to their attack is, well, Moses and Aaron tried giving you the law, and you all said, who made you judge and jury? And, and the minute that Moses was gone to go retrieve the law, like almost literally the minute, you all got bored and said, well, there's no telling how safe he is. We need something to worship. Hey, we heard those Egyptians like those cow statues a lot. Let's make some of those. You can hear, in a sense, all the sarcasm and the irony that's pouring out of the fact that those who beat their chests we obey the law around these parts. Really? Because when it was trying to be given to you, it became weak. And it's not the same people, but it is by heritage. Throw in your jewelry, melt it down, and poof, Aaron said, poof, out came a calf. I didn't know what was going on. They just said, hey, we need a God to worship. And, and Moses, second in command, just minutes after he left, it seems, said, that sounds like a good idea. How do we know if Moses is coming back with the law that we love so much? Stephen is saying, this is not a derogatory to the law. I'm not dismissing the law at all. I'm exposing the fact that you don't adhere to it anywhere near what you claim to. You're about to, he doesn't know this necessarily, but you're about to kill me over something that you don't even believe in your heart. Yes, the law is great and necessary, but you couldn't even handle it when it was given to you. So in summary, the first couple of defensive points that again a lot of this big section of scripture is tackling here is no you don't need a temple to meet God and yes you need to obey God's law but without Jesus it can't be done we have a terrible history of obeying the law is what he's saying it can't be done without Christ so he offers his third observation he says I don't know if you guys have noticed but we Jews have a pattern as soon as God appoints someone to be his voice, we have a tendency to reject them and make their lives uh, misery. That happened with Joseph, with his brothers, amongst the 12 that we call the patriarchs of our heritage. He came and said, God has appointed me to lead our people. And they said, we're jealous. You've always been daddy's favorite. We're going to make you pay for those statements. And he was sold into slavery. It was God who, who orchestrated that whole thing and put him in a place of rescuing not only his family, but the Jewish people after a long series of events. God appointed, they rejected. Moses comes after having been raised in Pharaoh's court in the splendor of the kingdom. And then he, and then he relates to the suffering of his own people and he says, I'm gonna, I'm going to go and visit with them. And he gets this pull in his heart that, hey, my own people are suffering and God's calling him and and anointing him to a task. And what do they do? They say, get out of here. What are you going to kill us? Like you did that other, you have to know sort of the history of, of Moses here and all the events of that story. But they basically like, we don't need your leadership. And even when he was appointed by God and put in that position, they kicked and screamed the whole way. They were like, I want to go back to Egypt. They had better food we have a history, he's saying, of rejecting those that God has appointed. You could even see it in the life of David, who was anointed to be king and yet had to spend so much of his time in the wilderness running for his life because it wasn't clear that everyone was going to just make this happen. He's the anointed leader of God, and so we have to let him run and hide so he isn't killed by King Saul in fear of his life. All of these things, he's not necessarily coming out and saying point one is this and point two is this. But for the astute Hebrew ear, they are seeing the embarrassing track record of their long history, even while they are accusing Stephen as somehow being the faithless one. Jesus is the location of God, not the temple. Jesus is the satisfaction to God's commands, not the not our adherence to the law. But he's also the solution to man's problem. So let's go into our text a little bit here in verse 51. Stephen's not making any friends with this statement. He says, you stiff necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of these prophets did your fathers not persecute? Sandwich guy's getting hot. Lucky, can you relate? A little chef fire in the belly kind of. Lit, let's, yeah, I think Stephen might have had a little bit of a lucky personality about him. And take no prisoners. Here's what he's exposing. He says there's there's a problem here that your hearts are hard. They've spent so much time filling their hearts with religious duty and adherence to jumping through all the hoops of the law to make it look like on the outside that they're all set. They have filled their hearts with power and prestige and influence. They've, they've, they've cozied up to the Roman occupiers to make a life that just works for them and that sort of thing. But really what they filled their hearts with these hard hearts are fear of losing their position. Pride in the position that they have. Anger towards anybody that threatens it. And as we're going to see, absolute bottom of the barrel cruelty towards anybody that gets in their way. Stephen's exposing what Jeremiah already told them. He says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The problem is, is that unless they were to surrender to Christ, they had these hard hearts of stone incapable of doing the right thing next. But the solution has also been given to them by the prophets in Ezekiel 36, where God promises, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. As he's prophesying to his own people, he says, this is your problem is that you do not have a transformed heart out of surrender to the Lord. And so how is he providing it? Well, according to Stephen's words, we pick back up and says, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Peter is giving us a very precise phrase here, and it's a unique one, one that doesn't always show up in terms of a description or a title of the Lord. So we'd have to understand that this is making things pretty climactic. This is something that Stephen really wants his hearers to understand, that you have not only denied and and resisted the Holy Spirit, you have persecuted the righteous one. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law that we cannot keep. And this pattern of our history, this pattern of rejecting God's voice, this pattern of, of being uh, threatened by God's moving in our life and us not wanting to give up our, our hard hearts of stone, Jesus is the completion to that pattern. He is finally the answer. He's the one that we've been waiting for. He is the righteous one, all of your do-gooding, all of your efforts have been cloaked in deceit and treachery. You don't have any righteousness about you. There's only one that can give it. It's interesting when you look at all of the rescuers that Stephen has addressed, all the ones that are part of that Hebrew history, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, all of them saved people despite the rejection that they experienced. The plan of God was that Jesus would use the rejection and would enter into it in order to accomplish his purposes. We understand that from from our New Testament where God left his throne in heaven. Jesus was born of a virgin to be to live perfectly and righteously for us, to willingly lay his life down before the angry mob so that they would take his life from him and offer it as a sacrifice for us. Jesus lived perfectly for us. If we're seeing the picture in this, it's one of a beautiful portrayal of the gospel. He lived perfectly for us. He suffered rejection, denial, and death on our behalf. He carried our penalty to the cross. So Jesus becomes our righteousness. He dwells in the temple of our hearts. And so they're getting an invitation, the same as which we have been given in our lives, which is, will you put your belief in him for a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone? That's how we become new creations. We can't add some religion. We can't add some do-gooding. We can't even add some Jesus to our life. We surrender to him. He comes in, transforms us, and makes us new. This is how Stephen is putting Jesus on display. So lastly, as we wrap this up, what hope do we have? What what promise do we have of our future um, uh, situation? What can happen to us even in the worst of our circumstances? We can see Jesus like Stephen did. Let's pick up in verse 54. When they heard these things, all that he had said, all the history and all the embarrassing uh, reminders... They were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Another phrase that we've seen often in our translations is they gnashed their teeth. Those of you that know your Bibles know that there will be continuing gnashing of teeth by those who have rejected the Lord and are burning forever in a a place called hell, which we don't talk about often enough. And yet they're gnashing their teeth, and I want us to make the connection between the attitude here And what's causing them to grind their teeth in anger and frustration is also the same thing that will still be happening even as they pay for the consequences of their sin. And that should terrify us and break our hearts because that we would go into judgment still angry at the fact that we're there rather than understanding and realizing what we've missed out on. When they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. There's an incredible scene that's happening here. That not only is he seeing a clear vision. There's nothing in the scripture that says he was having a brain moment. A lot of people in science want to explain away, you know, the neurons and synapses. And all these other sorts of things that are happening in times of the body shutting down and all that kind of stuff, or in complete euphoria that he thought he was envisioning. There's nothing in the scripture that says that that's what's going on. So we take the word of God um, at face value, where it says to, he is seeing. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. We saw this in John. We saw it again in Ephesians. We saw it in Acts chapter one, that in the ascension of Jesus, that as he goes to the right hand of the father, he is not just going back to heaven. He's going back in a position of authority that being at the right hand of the father is the one who's in charge of the whole landscape and he's going to direct it. He's going to orchestrate it. And it's also a place of, of advocacy because we've been told in the scriptures, let me just jump ahead a little bit, um, Kelly, here to 1 John 2. that my, It says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In the response to all the hatred against Stephen, all the penalty that he was about to pay for stirring and agitating them, And they're gnashing their teeth and they're so angry at him, they can't even control themselves. This is part of a little bit of a a tangent for us here. Because sometimes we try to do like what the scripture says, a soft answer turns away wrath. And for the most part, that's true. But sometimes wrath is just wrath. And sometimes no matter what you do to try to quell the situation, try to respond reasonably, there is a simmering fire on the other side of the equation that just cannot be calmed. We have to recognize sometimes that there are many reasons, but for the most part, a lot of guilt and fear comes in the heart of people. And guilt fuels the fires of rage beyond what logic can even extinguish. No matter what you say that's right or calm or, or even trying to kiss up or be sweet or any of those kinds of things may not calm that situation because of the burning rage and anger from a life of guilt or shame that might be burning in somebody else. This is what Stephen is facing and in the height of his accusation and what he's about to experience really for a physical death penalty, he sees the Son of God standing at the right hand of God. Standing, Not just, this is kind of how I've always read this text. That it's like a welcoming committee that he's standing and saying, keep, keep going. You're going to make it. And I think that's all part of it. I think that's what fuels Stephen to, to press through the pain and the, and the fear of it all is that he sees Jesus ready to welcome him. But what, what, what Luke seems to incu- include here is that he's standing at the right hand of God in defense of all the things that are being thrown against Stephen. You're guilty of hating the temple. You're guilty of the law. And this is what we hear. You're guilty of this. And Satan is standing before the bench of God the Father saying, they're guilty of this. And I saw them do this. Do you know what they're thinking right now? And laying off uh, accusation after accusation after accusation. Jesus, the righteous one, the advocate, our attorney, comes before the bench and shows the judge the scars and talks about the history of living righteously on our behalf and laying our life down defending us against the accusations of the enemy. Keller says that while an earthly court condemns Stephen, a heavenly court commends him. I found that line to be very encouraging, and I hope you do too this week. For the rest of your life, while an earthly court condemns all your actions, your past, your history, your failures, which there will still be plenty, right? A heavenly court commends you As your life is in Christ, he's covered our sins. He's paid our ultimate penalty. And enduring our suffering, no matter how painful our suffering is, enduring it is possible when we recognize that heaven is cheering us on, that heaven is the welcoming committee. Hebrews tells us that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. We can endure the pain, the suffering, and the uncertainty of life knowing That they get it. They're on the other side. They know it's worth hanging on to. This is what Stephen's taking in. He's seeing Jesus, his advocate, but he's also going to live out Jesus as his example. Let's go to verse 56. And he he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. That's all they needed to hear. I mean, talk about the thing. You introduce Jesus into the equation, it'll, it'll upset everything. But in particular, he's saying, I'm seeing the son of man, which means he exists. So the Messiah must be in the picture so that the Jew is hearing that and being like, how dare you say that the one that we just crucified. Remember last week they said, you're saying you're trying to put this man's blood on our hands, even though during the crucifixion, they were like, crucify him, put his blood on our hands. Now it's actually coming back to haunt them. They want nothing to do with it. So Stephen says, I see the one whose blood is on your hands standing ready to welcome me in glory. They lose their minds. That's exactly what's going on here. They have a conniption. They lose everything. They freak right out. They lost it. They cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. Can you picture grown men? Kind of going, I can't handle it. I mean, that's how crazy incensed these men were. They were reduced to tantrum-giving little children and just absolutely flipping out. And they rushed together at him. This uh, Hollywood would have to do an incredible acting portrayal for us to get the gravity of the rage that is being expressed. That Stephen, he didn't have an earthly shot from this point on of surviving this. Their minds were made up. They didn't care about protocol. They didn't care about whether or not this was justified. They might have done some quick political calculations to be like, "Ah, the Romans will cut us a break on blah, blah blah blah. Let's get this guy out of the city and let's kill him." I've got younger years in the audience today, I won't go into detail, but when it says in verse 58 that they cast him out of the city and stoned him, this isn't just like picking up some baseball-sized rocks and seeing what happens. This is a brutal process, and and it's, and it's 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 got a step-by-step formation to it that if it doesn't work in the first step, then it's kind of hard to witness and be around, and there's time for some response, and I'll just let you as well-informed adults kind of fill in the gaps, but this isn't pretty. And, and they're so invested in it and so worked up. It says that the witnesses laid down their garments like, oh, I'm getting into this one. We're going to make sure we're going in for the shot this time. And they lay their feet at a young man named Saul, who Luke is including him in, on purpose for us to be aware of his presence. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. In the the process of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, most likely through a couple of failed attempts, some painful misses, You know, if you feel anything that just like is painful or whatever, what's your first thought? Where do you go in your mind? I don't know. I mean, Stephen just, it's pouring out of him. Yes, the grace of the spirit is resting on him. The Lord is performing another miracle. I get all that. But Stephen was somehow strangely ready for this moment. So that he could say the things that I think all of us probably with pure hearts would want to say could be said about us if we were facing the same thing. I want someone to say, oh, that Brent guy, man, when he was taking a pounding, he forgave his enemies. He, he, he was gracious in it and everything. I, I don't know how you get there. I don't know how prepared. I mean, I get a hangnail and it's like my life's over, right? I don't know how to be ready for that moment other than the things that we've talked about. We've been able to dissect Stephen's life and character a little bit, the little that we're given, but we see it on display in such profound ways that he was able to respond this way. Well, we shouldn't be too surprised. In Luke 23, when it was Jesus' turn, if you will, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So, Stephen is conducting the example of his savior. Sometimes we forget that the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit rests in, in us and is capable of accomplishing these incredible things. And we shouldn't really be surprised, though, because this is a command and God's not going to give us a command that he won't give us the ability or the power to execute. In Luke 6, Jesus laying the foundation for the way the kingdom is different from everything else they'd experienced and how they had seen God and stuff. In Luke 6, Jesus says, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your your reward will be great. And you'll be the sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful. He is kind to the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. I don't think, there might be some equals, but you certainly don't get any more merciful than the picture we're seeing in Stephen in this text. Jesus' face is seen in those who forgive their enemies, not just their friends. Jesus even said, you know, loving somebody that loves you back, there's no big whoop in that. It's when you learn to love your enemies, you respond in mercy instead of retaliation. This is the most transformative impact the gospel can make in our culture around us. And I love the fact that this is all packaged in a man who stood up to power. I love the fact that he addressed sin where sin was present and obvious to him. I love the fact that he didn't shy from the stage. Because we get this so confused. If we forgive our enemies, that makes us pacifists. If we forgive our enemies, that means we're not supposed to stand up for right. We're just supposed to ho-hum, go along, let the world go to hell in a handbasket. That's not what we see Stephen doing. He's using his opportunity. He's addressing it respectfully but sharply. And he's offering forgiveness. He's offering mercy on the way out. I believe the church in general, by and large the american church especially is losing the the skill to offer that grace and mercy heading out of the courtroom so often we think we have enemies all around us and they don't deserve anything but to stew in the uh, to to boil in the stew that they're making and and that sort of thing if we're not careful we begin to uh, relish or enjoy the sufferings of others rather than see that it was our suffering that Jesus took and we, by his grace, have been rescued from it. All of this, as we looked at this gigantic text today, was to help us understand that there's no greater test of our hope than how we handle suffering, especially in the face of death, but that is an appointed time for all of us at some point. Some may be more um, acutely than others, but But definitely we are all facing that same appointment. It's it's a good exercise for us to imagine, how would I want to go out? When I'm facing the end, what do I want said about me? What do I want to have people see in my face when the time comes? But not all of us are on our deathbed, of course. So in what ways can we practice that same hope? Can we experience that same hope in lesser forms of suffering or in the things that don't seem to have an end? The thing that we have to recognize is that if our belief system can't bring you peace on your deathbed, then it isn't going to bring you peace in the day-to-day of your life. You and I serve a God who has not only given us hope for eternity, but he has planted that eternity in the here and now for us. That eternal life is not something that we wait for, it's something that we experience now. And the glory that you see in your suffering will be the impact of the gospel in the world around you. We aren't Billy Grahams. We don't have massive stages where we will necessarily impact the thousands. But we will impact those around us who see how we conduct ourselves, how we live our lives, where we cling to for hope when things are going off script, when things are painful in our lives. So the glory that you see in your suffering is what will help spread the gospel to the world that is watching. Saul was in the audience. And some and many, I should say, have made the connection that what Paul, who becomes Paul, you know, Saul becomes Paul later on after his conversion, Paul's theology and framework and sort of his outline of things largely comes back to a map that we see here in Stephen's message. Stephen preached his message and they killed him. Saul didn't immediately go, wow, that was really heavy. I should really follow Jesus. I'm on the wrong side of this. He says, oh, good. I I accomplished my mission. Another one's gone. And then he hit the road until Jesus intercepted him and changed his life. Till he could see Jesus spiritually. But he came back to that impact that Stephen's message had. And it changed how he taught the church. And we've been the beneficiaries ever since. But I want to conclude this with just that simple little phrase, kind of a beautiful phrase, really, that after Stephen had paid such an incredible price for his testimony, after he had felt such incredible pain from that process, he fell asleep. This, again, in an anxious world, in the circumstances that we find us in, this is where true peace and rest is found. Total surrender and trust to Jesus Christ. He will Give you his character, you will allow, you will be able to present him to the world around. And when the time comes and in various ways and in different stages of your life, you will see him in glory acting on your behalf. Let's stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know that Stephen was a man, I know that he was flesh and blood, that he was not a God or anything like that, but when we stand really in the presence of such an incredible story, we can't help but admire and praise his vulnerability, his willingness to stand for you. Lord, we are so often guilty of caving over the slightest senses of pressure. The smallest moments of potential embarrassment. Fearing to be misunderstood or maligned by the people that we're trying to win their influence with. Stephen didn't hesitate and he spoke up for you. Lord, we won't be as eloquent. We won't be as knowledgeable all the time. But we can be as willing. So in the shame that we often feel when we hear of these heroes of the faith, Lord, I pray that you would build us up instead rather than rest in that shame, rather than somehow just leave that to the pros. I pray, Lord, you'd help us to be challenged and convicted and give us just another ounce of willingness to follow in your footsteps, to put you on display, to experience a vision of your glory, just as Stephen did. Thank you, Lord, for calling us, for being so patient with us, allowing your church to remain intact while we wait for your return. We know, Lord, you have a plan, and we just want to be a part of it. So thank you, Lord, for giving us the only hope we could ever have in our difficulties. Thank you for being our presence. In Jesus' name, amen.